Matthew chapter 3. Just a few short verses, but important ones. Well, they're all important ones. Can't drop any of them. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold... The heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let us pray again. Father, we thank you for your word. The parts that we know and the parts that we do not know as well. We ask that you would now speak that we might listen. Lord, we wish to hear from heaven. We don't need to hear a a frail, broken man speak. Obviously, I demonstrate my brokenness in the last two minutes. Can't pick a song correctly. But yeah, we need something greater than that. We need something greater than me. We need the words of Christ. We need the ministry of your Spirit. And so we ask that we might now hear from heaven. Open our eyes. Unclog our ears. That we might hear the voice of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Who are you? Who are you? I mean, that's kind of an obvious question, right? We teach our our children how to answer that question, and we answer that question with our name, and we kind of move on, right? Hi, I'm Michael. Nice to meet you. And we think it's a simple question, but if you actually kind of ponder the bigger depth behind that, it's actually a really hard question to answer, isn't it? I mean, you think about it, if somebody maybe from another country came over here and is learning about American life for the first time and to ask, well, well, who are you? Well, suddenly your name doesn't really cut it anymore, does it? Well, I'm Michael doesn't, that's not a really sufficient answer. I have to give more information. Well, okay, I, I, I'm Michael. I'm married, have been for more than a decade. I've got two children. Okay, that's neat and all. And I'm a pastor of a church and I love my church. And, okay, and you start giving more information and start kind of rounding out. But then again, that still doesn't get kind of at the essence of who we are, does it? And so we have these crazy things like personality tests where it try to kind of give us quantifiable ways to explain, well, who am I? Well, am I an extrovert or an introvert? Right? Well, I'm an extrovert. Okay. Uh, am I a person who's more tender and emotional or not so much? Not so much. Okay. Uh, okay. And trying to kind of quantify who I am is very, very difficult. It's hard to explain who a person is to someone else. Right? Now think about, that's difficult for me to try to explain who I am to you. 
how difficult is it to try to explain someone else? All right, listen, if I picked any one of you, and I know most of you fairly well, and I tried to explain who you are to everyone else, well, that, that's a really problematic task, isn't it? To try to get all of who a person is and explain it to someone else. And suddenly in that moment, we kind of get a little bit of what the, the gospel writers are having to do. Right? They're having to answer this question, who is Jesus? And they're trying to answer it in a book. And they only have a couple of pages, not that many words. And trying to explain, well, who is Jesus in such a way that not just the people immediately reading it, but that it could be circulated throughout regions and now throughout millennia. And explain, who is this Christ? Who is this Jew that lived in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago and has revolutionized the world? Who is this guy? That's a hard thing to answer. In fact, you have so many different answers of those that are trying to just explain what the Scriptures say and those that are trying to explain away what the Scriptures say and all kinds of things when the Gospel authors have told us quite clearly. The Holy Spirit's laid it out. We know exactly who he is. We don't know all of his personality features. I don't know if he would have chosen vanilla ice cream or chocolate or both. I don't know. But I know who Jesus is. This passage here in these few short verses is packed full of Jesus. And it starts with a thing called baptism, really with John the Baptist. And many of us know about him, not all of us. Okay, that's fine. John the Baptist was his cousin. He's the godliest man on the planet. He is the one who is sent to pave the way for the Savior of sinners. And at this point in Bible history, he's at the height of his ministry. Right? He's right around 30 years old. We actually have a pretty good guess. This is either the fall of 26 AD or this time of year of 27 AD. So this is right around this time of year, 26 or 27 AD. It's at the height of when everybody was coming out to visit him. And he's going to be kind of the tool to introduce this question. Who is Jesus and what is he up to? Who is Jesus and what is he up to? And it's actually, it's complicated of enough question that at this point in the story, John himself doesn't understand. He has some sort of kind of grasp. Remember when he was in the womb and Jesus, you know, Mary walks by, he jumps when he finds it. There's some sort of grasp of Jesus is special, but he himself doesn't fully understand. He says in another book that he didn't even get until after the baptism who Jesus was. It didn't click in his brain fully who this man is until after this incredibly significant baptism. His response here is a bit confusing. It's a little bit fuzzy. Uh, because he's still it's kind of coming clear, right? You remember that moment in math class? Some of you, that may have been a couple of years ago. But you remember that moment in math class where you were sitting there and the teacher, everything they were saying made no sense. And you start to kind of get it and you're like, oh, 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 but it's not quite there yet. You know you're about to understand, but you're not quite. That's where John is, right? He's about to understand what long division is, but he just can't quite get it yet. Right? And so he's, he's out here baptizing, and this baptism is going to be the key to help us understand who Jesus is. And he's baptizing here, not with Christian baptism, not with what we do up here, over here I guess, uh, not with this pouring of water in the way that we think of it, but in a much kind of bigger way. 
He is taking up baptism in a way that the Jews would have been familiar with, which is a symbolic action. And it would have symbolized two things, right? Baptism is two things. It would have symbolized a change of washing, of cleansing, and it would have symbolized a change of identity. That's what baptism always meant everywhere throughout all of Bible history is a washing or a cleansing and a change of identity. All right, so you think about when the priest, when they went to be ordained, they were baptized. They were anointed with oil and sprinkled upon them in blood and such. Uh, Notice they weren't dunked in it. They weren't dipped in it. It was sprinkled upon them. But it symbolized that they were then cleansed for a particular task, and they were identified with that task. They no longer belonged to themselves or belonged to their families. They belonged to God. They were set aside for a different task. It changed their identity, and it changed their cleansing, their washing. And this is, in essence, kind of what John is doing out in the desert, He's baptizing people with a baptism that's supposed to be two things. One, it's supposed to be a washing, a a symbol of sorrow over sin. So that in this time, if you felt overwhelmed, if you felt compelled to get cleansed of the evil in your heart, you could go out to John, you could confess your sins to the Lord, and he would baptize you as a symbol of God's cleansing. And it identified you with the people that are consumed with forgiveness. They don't yet know Jesus. They don't yet know all of what that would entail. But these are a group of people that are sorry for sin and are identified around that same theme. And it's in light of that that Jesus walks out to John. He goes out again at the height of his ministry. There's a huge crowd there. It's interesting. Some of the disciples were there before they're called as disciples. And as Jesus walks out, John sees him and goes, uh-oh, we got a problem here. Because remember, John's, he's understanding, but it's not there yet. It's fuzzy in his brain. He, he's kind of got the idea of long division, but he can't replicate it himself. It's, it's almost there, but it's not quite right. And so Jesus comes to him to be baptized, to be washed of sin symbolically, to be uh, identified with the sinner, identified with those who need cleansing. And John goes up to him and says, whoa, 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 whoa bucko, we can't do this. We, we, can't, we, we, can't, we can't do this. Now, I, my suspicion is John had an understanding that Jesus was more righteous than he was, right? I mean, you think about it. You live with family members for three decades and they never sin. You're probably going to have a pretty good idea that they're a good person, right? They've been living in the same region for three decades, John's six months older, and he's never seen Jesus sin. So he's understanding kind of intuitively, well, it's kind of awkward for John, the sinner, to baptize Jesus, who at this point, he doesn't fully understand, never seen sin. It's because Jesus never has sinned, but he doesn't understand all that yet. It's, again, fuzzy in his brain. And so he stops him and says, well, we we, we can't do this. If we're going to do this right, you're going to baptize me. Right? If we're going to do this right, you're the good person. I'm the less good person. You're going to be the one who baptizes me because I need to be identified with sorrow for sin. And Jesus' response shows us kind of our first kind of key building block on him. Three identities. Remember, we're talking identity, change of identity and baptism. Jesus identifies with the sinner in his baptism. 
This is a profound statement. The response that the Lord Christ gives to his cousin is magnificent, right? John throws a hissy fit. I'm not going to baptize you. This ain't going to happen. No way. No how. It's not going to go. And Jesus' response is, let it be for now. With the implication, the other one will happen later. right? We'll do it the other way later. But for right now, just for right now, let it be this way. Because Jesus is teaching John a lesson that it's important for Christ to identify with the broken. It's important for Christ to identify with the sinner. It's important for Christ to be counted among them. You see, this is a baptism Jesus shouldn't get. This is a baptism for sorrow over sin. He's never sinned. He doesn't deserve this baptism, right? He can't, he shouldn't get it. But instead, he chooses to identify with people like you and me. To identify with the needy. In fact, actually, he goes further. It gives this kind of quasi-cryptic but pretty profound statement. Let it be this way for now. We'll do it the other way later. But for now, let's do it this way. For it is fitting for us, John, you and I, to fulfill all righteousness. So in this baptism, in this Christ identifying with sinners, all righteousness is going to be accomplished. And you say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me. I don't, I don't understand it. Right? Well, it's going to show up later in the theology of the scriptures where it says, well, I need to be righteous. Michael, personally, right now, I need to be righteous. And I've sinned. I mean, it's a shocker, I know. I've sinned, right? I've sinned this morning. I've sinned today. All week. And I desperately need righteousness. My standing before God desperately needs righteousness. Because I stand condemned apart from righteousness. And in order for me to have righteousness, I have to have Christ come down and identify with me. He's telling them. They don't get it yet. It's not clear. It's still fuzzy in their brain. But he's telling them, look, I'm going to become one of you. In my ministry, Christ is saying, I will be one of you. I've lived it for three decades, but now as he takes up the mantle of the Messiah, takes up the mantle of his ministry, he's going to become one of his people. He's going to identify with them. This is an amazing thing, isn't it? To think about how much identity defines us. I'm left-handed. That was a big point of identity for me as a child because where I went to school, they had all of the fancy desks that had the like, you know, one arm slit. So I had to sit like this in order to be able to write. My left handedness was a major point of identity for who I was when I was in school. It shaped so much of who I am. I was different than all the other kids. It was a pain in the neck. It was the only one in most of my classes. It was a nightmare. And then we've all gathered together here, all lefties in here, so many of us. It shaped how I viewed myself. It shaped how I interacted with my friends, right? When I walked into the one classroom that had the left-handed desk, everybody left it open because they knew Michael needed it, no matter where it was sitting, right? That's his. It shaped my relationship with everyone. And here Jesus is saying, look, it's time for me to shape my relationship with everyone, not shaped in perfection, but shaped as associating with sinners, Shaped like he looks like one of them. 
He becomes one of them. He never sins. He's never defiled. He's never evil. But again, think about that, that tremendous portrait we had earlier where the, the woman comes in, this loose woman, and begins to wash his feet with her hair. How tender. Why can she do that? Because they're identified. They're, they're related. He's taken up that mantle. And it's fun to think about in terms of application. What do we do with a theme like this that Jesus identifies with me? Is that it gives a tremendous sense of comfort. That no matter where you are in your walk, that no matter where you are in your life, no matter what's going on behind the scenes, the hurt and the heartaches that you carry, the scars and the sins, Jesus identifies with broken people. He's put on that coat, so to speak, so that he would be able to relate to them and be able to redeem them. That's a profound definition for Jesus right there. One who identifies with sinners. One who will be able to connect with them and redeem them. But it doesn't stop in the passage. Again, as if that weren't enough. But he identifies, secondly, uh, not just with the needy, right? Jesus identifies with the needy in his baptism. But he identifies with the abiding work of the Spirit in the Spirit's presence. Now, again, the, the point they're trying to get here is not to give us all the details, but to kind of move us through the story pretty quickly. But So Jesus gets in, he talks with John, he convinces John to do the baptism. They walk out into the Jordan River together. John scoops up water and baptizes him. Again, it's probably not a dunk. The Jews would never have thought to dunk anybody. They baptized for, at this point, four centuries, and they've never, ever, ever dunked people. Uh, But, sorry, anyways, he gets down there, he gets baptized. Not a point, but he gets baptized. And they walk up out uh, out of the river, and the crowd is there. And again, this next moment is so kind of powerful that everybody that's there remembers it for the rest of their lives. Again, it's, it's only mentioned here in a couple of verses, but in Acts, when they go to pick the next disciple, they all refer to having to have been there. They were there to see this. This changed everything. Because they walk up out and behold, behold the heavens were opened to him. This is kind of important. Heavens were open doesn't just mean like we see, you remember the old flannel graphics of the Sunday school as a kid where the, it just meant the clouds kind of meep and then the and the light came. That's, that's not it at all, right? They're picking up the language of Ezekiel, which is where God in his glory chariot descends to earth. And it's wholly terrifying. It's why people don't read Ezekiel, because it is wholly terrifying to think about what it is, right? He has this magnificent glory chariot with these spinning gyroscopes as wheels, with angels pulling at these creatures of fire, with glory shining everywhere, and it radiant like the sky, beautiful in all of its majesty. That's what opens up above him. And out of this glory, this thing like a dove, not a dove, like a dove, uh, usually that's a descriptor for something so magnificent words don't get it right anytime you see them go well it was like this uh, words broke right language just kind of fractured at that so in the midst of this glory cloud the holy spirit descends upon him and we find out from john it's not just that he descends upon him but he remains there 
So that as Jesus goes about those next series of conversations and interactions and talking with the people that are there, the dove resides above his head. I would just challenge you for a moment to contemplate the significance of that. You went out because you were sorry for your sins. You just happen to be there the day that Jesus shows up. And he gets baptized. You already baptized, right? You got baptized earlier. He, he shows up. He gets baptized. And all of a sudden, God's glory descends on the river. And then out of everybody that's there, his glory descends not upon John, the guy in charge, but upon Jesus, the one who is baptized. And it doesn't go away. It stays with him. So that he is intimately identified with the work of the Holy Spirit. Intimately, they're connected so that they would never be separated. Which is fun to think about. He'll never be separated from his people. He'll never be separated from the Spirit. Again, this leaves a mark on all of his disciples forever. They remember this forever. It's a foreshadowing of what they're going to see later. Where he's taken up into glory and then even more foreshadowing when he comes back. But it's fun to think about that his ministry is characterized with people like us, but it's also characterized with the Holy Spirit working in and on them. And to think about just part of what the Holy Spirit's work is, illumination. You understand? We pray for that. I pray for that every time. I know it's sometimes inconvenient. We pray a lot in church here. A lot. And I have that one right before I preach every time. Asking the same thing every time. That the Holy Spirit would open our eyes. That we might see Jesus. That we might hear from heaven. That's part of what he does. And you think about what is the ministry of Jesus. It is illumining God to us. For he is God. He's showing all of the glories of heaven. The only one ever to show salvation perfectly. Because he did it on the cross. And that blessing of the Holy Spirit, that illumining work, continues to remain on Him. You think about for believers, so much of our life is described in the Scriptures as abiding in Christ, right? laboring in the Spirit, not quenching the Spirit, working with God in us. You think about that's what His ministry begins with and continues that way all the way through. We're just being commanded to do what Jesus has already done. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? I mean, look at this. He's identifying with sinners to save them. He's identifying with the Holy Spirit to abide with the power of God in him. That is an amazing description. I mean, if you ask who is Jesus, you get those two things. My goodness, you've done well, haven't you? But it doesn't stop. Continues. With the, the, the coup de grace, the, the best of them all. The Holy Spirit resides upon him in something that kind of looks like a glory dove of some kind. I, I don't know what it looks like. It's too beautiful to describe. And then we hear God himself, the God the Father. Now, Holy Spirit God, yes. Jesus God, yes. Father God, yes. One God, three persons, Trinity, right here perfectly. But we hear God the Father say, This 
is my beloved. All right. I don't know how many people would have gotten past the first word before they were completely and wholly terrified. Again, remember, the sky has just opened. We've seen just this little bit of the glory cloud of God shining down. And then this bit of glory itself comes down and descends upon this one guy and continues with him as he walks around. So he's marked different as everybody else. And then the cloud starts speaking. I really would have wanted to contemplate being someplace other at that moment. And what does it say? This man, not John... John, the greatest man of all time, the most righteous, this spectacular human that is John the Baptist, not John the Baptist, but this Jesus is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now that is an endorsement, isn't it? That as Jesus takes up the mantle of ministry, he's already clearly stated he's going to identify with sinners. He's going to redeem a people. He's going to go to the cross with all of their sins upon him. But even as he does those things, he has the Father's endorsement. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, I've got to unpack a couple of things. Beloved Son. This is not the adopted Son. That we are adopted sons and daughters, right? We're adopted children into the family. And we get all the rights and benefits, which are really cool. But adopted children don't share the same DNA with their parents, right? This is what adopted children are. We don't share the same DNA with God the Father. Jesus does. His substance, his very essence is God. My essence is human, right? (laughs) You cut me, it's human blood. I'm human. Jesus is divine and fully human. He shares DNA with both sides, Mary and with God. Right? That's his, his composition. Is he's fully God, he's fully man. And here the Lord is endorsing his blessing upon the Lord Christ. And to say, this is my son, in a way that no one else is. This child who is conceived spectacularly in the womb of a virgin. This child who has never yet sinned and never will. This child who will fulfill the law perfectly, this child, well, 30 now, who will eventually go to the cross and redeem people from their sins. This one is my beloved son. And I am well pleased. And is there a better thing to hear than I am well pleased from God? And again, you step into the life of the people that were there, and you got this, you know, again, the glory cloud opens, and this glory bit that looks kind of like a dove descends upon this one man who's there, and then this voice speaks. And you would think at that point, the second the father starts speaking, you would think the immediate thing is, well, I'm done. Game over. I had a nice run. Just, you know, kiss it goodbye. We're done. Boy, you know, that's it. Instead, instead of judgment coming, instead of wrath, it's, it's a statement of love and blessing something that would then later be applied to us isn't it i mean look at what we're, what we're looking for at the end of our lives as we sit before him and say well done good and faithful servant is the, the kind of adopted child version of this very same statement that i as his child am a source of love and pleasure for him 
You see, this is amazing that Jesus here in this moment is giving us three identities. He's identifying with man, he's identifying with the Spirit, and he's identifying with the Father. He is clearly explaining for us that he is fully man and fully divine in a way that John just doesn't get yet. That's why it says, after the baptism, it all made sense. Yeah, I would think that would do it. Hearing a voice from heaven, literally, that would, that would make for some good times, wasn't it? Okay, so what do we do with that? I mean, this is neat and all. I mean, yay, four verses and book written many, many years ago, written for us today. What do we do with this? Well, one is, is it does beg the primary question. If we know who Jesus is, he is the man who was sent to redeem sinners, He is God himself, blessed with the Spirit and blessed with the Father. Well, the first question, the big one is, what do we do with that? Meaning, will you follow him? That's the question. I mean, that's the whole deciding factor is, will you follow him? I mean, that's it. All of human existence can be summed up in that answer. It doesn't matter, again, if I'm Michael or if I'm an extrovert or introvert. It doesn't matter if I'm a husband or if I... That's the question. That is the question. Which side of the equation am I on with Christ? Am I one of those people who are sinners, desperately need of help, that he identifies with? Or am I going to be one of those enemies that in the end he destroys? What do I do? Do I follow Jesus? Now, I do have to give a a, a kind of a word of uh, addendum to that, a caveat. Following Christ is not something that's kind of like following the speed limit around here, right? If we ask us in here, we say, do you follow the speed limit? All of us in here are going to say, of course I do. And then we're going to get in your car and you're not going to follow the speed limit, are you? And we're all going to admit that we follow the speed limit, but then we don't ever actually kind of closely do it. The speed limit is anywhere from, what, three to seven miles over the number they post what says it's the speed limit. Sadly, we often do that when we talk about following Jesus. And we say, well, I follow Jesus, but then when it actually comes rubber hit the road, we don't actually do it at all. And we kind of like, no, I don't really actually follow myself. I'm just going to say I follow Jesus. And this is the point that I would make first and foremost, is that doesn't count. You see, the problem with this is that Christ, he, he will redeem you and pour out the blessings of heaven upon you. He will give you knowledge with the Father. He will fill you with the Spirit. But he demands your soul. That's the trade. You give him you, and he gives you everything. Now, I would encourage you that that's the best deal ever. Right? All you have to give is you, and he gives you everything beside. But this time in New Year, and a lot of times New Year's are great for kind of having resolutions and reevaluating your lives and thinking about your priorities, this would be a good time to do this. To reevaluate, what does my relationship look like? Is this Christianity thing kind of like the speed limit? Like, I know I'm supposed to, and I just don't care. I drive as fast as I want to, when I want to. I just don't want to get caught. As long as I don't get caught in anything big, it's not a problem. Or is Christ the one who dominates your life? 
dominates your character, dominates your identity. Now, for some of you, you say, absolutely, amen, glory, hallelujah. I love it. I love him. Great. Praise the Lord. I would give you a slightly different challenge in this one. And that is to increase the marvel at Christ. Many of us converted many, many years ago. And that's great. But things can grow a bit tired sometimes, right? I have been told that that sometimes can happen in marriage. I have no idea what's being talked about, but I have heard that that can happen, right? Young love is exciting, and newlyweds have that Twitter-pated, kind of fuzzy, excited, exuberant thing going. And then as they've been married for decades and decades, they eh, get a little tired. I've heard. I would encourage you to not let that happen in your Christianity but to labor aggressively to gain that sense of wonder. To marvel, to be baffled at the beauty of Jesus. That the story that you may have heard since you were a child, that God would send His Son to die for me, would blow your mind. Brothers and sisters, if we as a church can labor towards those two goals this year, I I pretty much say this year is guaranteed to be a success. We may get a second building, we may not. We may lose half our members. We may all be called to glory in a bus accident. It does not matter if we do those two things. Examine what's my relationship to Jesus and how can I increase the wonder of Christ. We will do well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for our great Savior, Jesus, who's not too proud to identify with people like me. I would not want to identify with people like me if I just came from heaven, much less if I were the second person of the Trinity, and yet he has. Give us wonder. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.